0: I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS and in today's show we are revisiting insurance in the rental market. We're going to take a look at how InsurTech is changing the way consumers are protected. So right now £4.5 billion is tied up in deposit schemes in the UK in the hope that renters don't break something whilst they live in their homes. Those renters should also pay contents insurance on top to protect their belongings. We're joined by some lovely guests from some top InsurTechs who are trying to shake things up in this industry. So first up, we have Jude Greer, CEO and co-founder of Reposit. How are you doing today, Jude?
1: Hi. Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for joining us. It's only two floors down for you, so... (laughs) Yeah, it
1: was the easiest journey ever. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) Especially for you.
0: So can you give us a quick overview of Reposit and what it does?
1: Yeah, of course. Reposit essentially replaces the cash deposit that renters have to pay when moving into new rental accommodation across the UK. Generally, that's set at five weeks rent. It's expensive, along with the other costs of moving. We replace that guarantee to the landlord with insurance, essentially, um, lowering the cost to the tenant when they're moving.
0: Brilliant. Um, We're also joined by Nick Willis, who's the head of growth at risk. Welcome to the show, Nick.
2: Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
0: So could you tell us a bit more about risk?
2: Absolutely. So our mission at risk, I guess, is really to change the way that we interact with insurance. So and the way that we do that is through unbundling uh, our insurance products so you only really pay for what you need um, and to make it a lot more transparent through our risk score, which is sort of like a credit score for personal risk.
0: So great to have you both with me. Let's dive into this. So... First and foremost, Jude, we have an international audience. Uh, So for those living outside of the UK, can you explain what a renter's deposit is? What does it usually cover?
1: Yeah, I don't think this is exclusive to the UK, but essentially landlords generally require tenants to pay a five-week or so cash deposit lump sum essentially in case they break anything or they breach the tenancy agreement, they don't pay their rent, they don't pay their bills, they don't clean properly, they damage contents that the landlord owns. That deposit is then placed in one of three government-backed schemes to protect it so that landlords don't use it for their own personal needs, shall we say, and at the end it's handed back or handed back minus whatever the damage or issue has been. I think that is pretty much worldwide you know actually some countries take more of a deposit some countries take two or three months we only take five weeks here in the UK but it is a problem everywhere
0: and, and it's that can be a huge amount actually particularly if you're renting oh, yeah. in London as somebody who's done that for well, a while
1: big time I mean you're talking I think in London the average is about three thousand pounds as a lump sum and that's just to rent a room I mean for most people even professional people that's a huge amount of money uh, so it's not just people who struggle to afford um, everyone's struggling actually
0: yeah, I mean, we could go into the London rental market, but that would be a whole whole separate podcast, although we can definitely touch on it today. Nick, in the UK, we call it home contents insurance. It yeah. kind of does what it says on the tin, but can you give us a bit more detail perhaps on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So home contents insurance typically comprises of, of two sort of main components. One of that is the general contents piece. So the way that we think about that is if you emptied your house and shook it, what would fall out? those are the things that we would include in your general content. So your furniture, your white goods, home electronics, your TV, that sort of thing. And then the other piece of it is your named items. So a type of sort of high value products that you take out of your home, such as your bike, your phone, your laptop, those types of things. Bundled together, generally speaking, that makes up your content insurance.
0: And of course, there's some overlap here as well, because you might be living in a home where some of the furniture is yours, some of the furniture belongs to the landlord. Do you guys think there's perhaps some confusion amongst renters about what they're supposed to be doing? You know, what does my A, what does my deposit actually cover? And B, what on earth is contents insurance? And what do I do with it? Why do I need it?
1: Well, I think it's reasonably clean cut. I mean, A deposit or deposit replacement, as our product is, is for the landlord. Essentially, the cover is for them, their contents and what they own. Um, Whereas tenants' contents insurance are for their own assets. I think the problem is, though, that generally renters and millennial renters are fairly asset poor. And I think in the past... Contents insurance was probably too wide sweeping, too expensive, which is where I think risk is right on point. They let them choose what's important to them and pay for that alone.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's generally uh, insurance is is a very confusing area, and as we say, there are a number of different sort of flavors of insurance that may apply to that individual, whether that's contents insurance, gadgets insurance, tenants' liability. There's there's all sorts of flavors there. So, the, the you know there's absolutely confusion in the market there. However you know, the reason that that we exist is to help sort of decipher that and make it far more simple and and easy to understand.
1: I think there's a statistic, isn't there, around 50% of renters don't have insurance at all. Yeah. yeah,
0: we talked about it a few times on the podcast. In fact, we'd co-ran an event with the FCA and the Treasury talking about how to increase access to content insurance. That was particularly for lower-income households mm. who actually, actually, it's, it's too expensive for them, for them to own. But, I mean, there were confusions that came out there as well, sort of particularly talking about content insurance. But, you know, is this protected in my home, outside of my home? Did I leave mm. that window open? What's, you know, what's covered, what's not covered? My bike yeah. is only covered if it's in my hallway, not yeah, in yeah. my living room or whatever it is.
2: Yeah, um, I think that's been driven by a very traditional, very old industry driven by small print clauses, ways for them to get out of paying for claims, which has effectively created a very sort of distrustful market where consumers don't feel like they'd be covered, even if they were paying for it. So, I mean, you've seen a policy wording and a policy document, They're, they're huge, they're 40 pages long, typically. So, you know, I think the role of, you know, why insure techs exist is to, you know, to help to simplify that and think about the customer first.
0: Let's, you know, you touched on it there, but let's go into this a bit more deeply. So how is what you're both doing, insure tech, what is the technology aspect here? How are we how are we doing things differently?
2: In terms of how we're doing things differently, if you look at the, uh, you know, the traditional uh, insurance market, and the, the customer journey, every touch point you have, with insurance tends to be quite painful through from having to put up with an awful ad on the TV of someone screaming and shouting or meerkats (laughs) uh, through to, you know, you going and, you know, typically now it's very price driven. So you go to a price comparison website, fill out 10, 15, 20 different questions, and then you're presented with 50 different quotes, all different shapes and sizes, all different providers. How could it be that I'm given, you know, 20 different quotes from the same information? So, you know, what we really wanted to do was improve that customer journey, A, and B, actually improve the experience after the bind. So we think about the changes that are made once you've purchased that policy, whether that's updating my cover, um, maybe I sell my bike, maybe I buy a new laptop adding and removing different things, as well as changing my address. You know, we're seeing that renters aren't staying in their property for 12 months anymore. They're moving here for six months and there for 12 months. All of those little changes require you calling up someone at a call center and then they'll charge you, you know, £20 for, for the benefit of, of updating it and actually being transparent. It's a very long-winded answer to say we've tried to remove all of that. So our platform has been built to a stream like that, that customer journey. So it's only five questions um, to get a quote. B, improve that customer engagement, so we have real-time chat in the app. Any changes you want to make to your policy are all done in real-time in the app. Your policy documents are updated uh, in real-time too. Your claims are all handled in-app, so we have in-app ethanol, and it's also a very flexible policy, so I can cancel whenever I like. I'm not fixed to a 12-month contract, and I'm not penalized um, for coming out of my contract.
0: How would I go about, say, for example, uh, I've broken something? How would I go about claiming for that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So, F null or first notice of loss happens within the app. So, if I you know, had my phone covered, it would be a case of going into the platform, you know, choosing that item, and, and effectively then actually submitting that notice of loss within the platform. So, what happened? Um, where were you? Um, you know, what sort of damage? Is it or is it accidental and damage? Is it loss, theft, that sort of thing? And then after that, the claims process um, starts.
0: Is any of that done via photos? Some people use, you know, use a camera phone to...
2: Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. So we don't do that today, but it's absolutely something that is something that we're thinking about. Obviously, the challenge of losing your phone is you can't take a picture of that phone. But, you know, there's a similar discussion around validating that the phone wasn't broken before you covered it. Yeah. If I need to validate that my uh, screen wasn't cracked, you know, one of the biggest claims is, is people with cracked screens and validate that it actually isn't cracked before I take out that policy. Um, you know, we started to experiment with people taking pictures of their phone in the mirror to validate that there's no cracks on the screen and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's definitely something we're thinking about.
0: The um, the, the idea of doing everything in app is so appealing to me as well. I just re I had to renew one of my insurance policies and my address had changed and they sent me an email. My policy document was, was beautifully short and it was it was great and it was written like a seven-year-old could understand. Yeah, yeah. But I needed to change my address and I emailed them like they told me to and nobody got back to me and I rang them and she was like, okay, I'll do that now for you. It'll come through in uh, two two to four weeks and <laughs> I was like, So am I covered or or not covered? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's that lack of real time, I I, I completely agree, needs to change. Absolutely. Particularly when it's something as simple as my address. Jude, how about you? So what's different? How does the industry traditionally work and and what are you doing differently?
1: Because we work within the property industry, I think it would be safe to say that it's, in some cases, technology-wise, quite slow-moving. And we're working with multiple different stakeholders. So we're connecting landlords, letting agents, tenants together with insurance, obviously. And the claims process is slightly different than to traditional insurance in the sense of there's almost a mediation portion of it. So a landlord or letting agent on their behalf may have an amount that they feel is right to have from the tenant due to whatever's happened. So there's a whole process of obviously uploading evidence of the amounts and the damage, et cetera, et cetera, rental receipts, whatever it may be. And then that's presented to the tenant and then there's a back and forth mediation to get to a figure that is correct, um, at which point, you know, we deal with collections and passing to the landlord or insurance claims if needs be. So similar to risk, absolutely everything's done end-to-end online. You shouldn't really have to call us... There's a, obviously intercom and live chat and we've had to build it from scratch because a process like ours hasn't existed before, really.
0: So if, if I'm the... How does it work for me? Do I have to do anything up front when I, you know, I agree that this is the property I'm going to rent? How, what is it, What do I have to do?
1: Generally, with our products, you'll be offered it via okay. a letting agent or landlord who we partner with, and they'll give you the choice. And it has to be a free choice because we can't force financial decisions on people, but mm-hmm. either you'll pay a five-week cash deposit or you'll use the Reposit Service and you'll pay them a week's rent, which is how much our service costs, instead, and your landlord will receive cover in case you default on what you owe via the covenants of the tenancy agreement. And if you choose Reposit, then the agent or landlord via our online portal will create a tenancy for you and add you to it. Then you'll come on, you'll be identity checked, anti-fraud checked. Um, You'll agree to our terms and conditions, confirm all the details the agent's put in is correct and then pay us, essentially. And then we'll auto-generate or auto-add the landlord to our insurance policy, covering them up to eight weeks' rent, which is obviously more than they would have got with the cash deposit. But we shouldn't really have to step in. There shouldn't really be any phone calls. It should all just work and link everyone together on one dashboard and portal.
0: So as a tenant, do I get my one week's payment back? No, that's the no, so service that's fee. That's the service fee that the tenant would pay?
1: Correct. Okay,
0: all right. I'm just trying to get my head around the, the user experience. It's Co-fed. not a deposit, that's what we keep yeah, saying. Yeah, everyone yeah. gets in their
1: head that it's a deposit. Yeah, it's no, not. no,
0: it's, it's it's a fee that you pay, and then the fee pays for the insurance, which is what covers the, the property.
1: Well, exactly. The insurance is there because otherwise a landlord would not allow a tenant not to pay a cash deposit because they... I guess rightly so, require some security, then you're not just going to come in and absolutely trash the place. And in lieu of that, you have to provide them with an offering that's attractive enough over a cash deposit that they will allow a tenant to use Reposit service. And that's what we want at the end of the day. Um, Reposit was created to help tenants move. But to allow the tenant to use it, we have to provide the landlord with a product that's appetizing to them.
0: Yeah, no, no, there's this give and take on, on both ends. I, I mean, I've always been incredibly lucky that I've always received all my deposit back from everywhere I've ever rented, but I hear that that <laughs> is like highly unusual. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's also um, the cash flow. You know, you're yeah. waiting for one back and you have to put another one down. Absolutely,
0: and... absolutely. No, we we had that when we just moved recently. I was like, hang on, we need we need the £3,000 yeah, we've yeah. got a six-week overlap. So when we look at the products that kind of exist traditionally, maybe this is more of a question for Nick. So I have got content insurance. How much of like what's, tenants would standardly buy as a content insurance is actually fit for purpose so if I go to say the meerkat site yeah and I put all my details in and I pick a content insurance policy how likely is it that that's the right contents policy for me that it's actually gonna properly have me covered and I'm not underinsured or overinsured or yeah
2: it's hard for me to say definitively yeah but I would say it more often than not there are likely to be areas or gaps where you may be overcovered or undercovered. You know, I think it can go both ways. And I think that typically, you know, um, traditional insurers try to assume what you need cover for and, you know, make a sort of blanket assumption that, look, you know, you live in a two-bed flat, you need 30Ks worth of cover. And, you know, these are the sort of um, high-value items we think that, that you'd like covered. Really prioritizing there on, on convenience, I guess, and making it, you know, simple just to go click and buy. But what we actually find is that, for the most part, the challenge is education. A lot of consumers actually don't understand how much the value of their items are. So, you know, when you look at the items in your flat, it is often very difficult to think, what would it cost if I lost all of these things? And so, as such, it's very difficult to then think, okay, what do I need cover for? So, there's a real education piece that's needed there, too. But... Traditionally, you know as we're saying, going through a price comparison website, the goal is to get you to buy a policy uh, and it is often driven by price. When it is solely driven by price, there will always be gaps, clauses or reasons why potentially that policy is not tailored to you, the individual, and why it's this sort of bundled policy full of lots of assumptions and, and plenty of small print.
0: It's actually, I think, goes back to the point that Jude made earlier as well, is that a lot of those policies will exclude the things that most people of sort of, you know, 25 to 35 bracket actually want insured the most. So they will exclude your one nice handbag, your your Mac, mm-hmm. your bike, your camera.
2: Yeah, even more than that, it's in undervaluing your items, you can often find that you're penalised for that when it comes to a claim. So, for example, if I say that I carry a £1,000 worth of items with me when I'm out of my home, say, you know, I just carry my iPhone, for example, but then one day I take my laptop out with me and I, you know, forget to add it to the insurance or whatever. If I then have an accident and lose both of those things and the insurance company find out that actually I was underinsured because I didn't, you know, notify them that I had perhaps £2,000 worth of items there, they can actually penalise you and only pay out a smaller percentage of that claim. So it's opaque for a reason. You know, it's really... Tricky and challenging as a consumer to really understand what you are and what you aren't for.
0: And, and I think on that point as well, being out and about from out of the house, I had my handbag stolen like a few years ago. And the contents of the handbag was, there were a few things that I probably should have had in children and didn't, a phone, a tablet, computer. I didn't even think about the fact that not only did I have to replace the phone and the tablet computer, I had an iPod that was no longer made. So I had to buy a more expensive model to replace it. I had to pay to get my keys recut. I had to pay to have the locks on my door refitted. Mm. I had to, you know, get a new driving license, which cost me 20 quid. You know, so, so saying the cost of my handbag was a thousand pounds or whatever, actually, you, you just don't think about it's yeah. actually more like two and a half grand by the time you've added all those mm. things up. I'm um, I don't know if you wanted, wanted to make a point earlier about the items being missed off.
1: No, I was just going to say, I, th- I think it's quite an emotional point. I think people need to be offered the chance to ensure what's important to them and what they care about. Um, and I think that's where the traditional insurers are missing. There's something rather cold or not speaking to people Mm. nowadays and and where we are and I think that's you know new insurance products a bit you know like Reposit for example that is a genuine need an insurance product that hopefully is servicing a need and there will be assets that people care about in the younger generation Um, I just until InsurTech and companies like Risk I just don't think it's been done right.
0: Yeah, I think there's um, a point there as well about sometimes when you, you think about things you need to ensure you think about your MacBook and your iPhone or whatever else it is. But I had a conversation with somebody who used to work with me and I said, how much would it cost you to replace all the clothes in your wardrobe? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, if your flat got flooded tomorrow and every item of clothing you own got ruined. She was like, I hadn't even thought about that. People mm. don't think
1: about yeah. that, though. They no. don't think about the worst case. And no. that's why so many people aren't insured. It's like life insurance. You don't get it until you have a kid, generally.
2: Yeah, it, it is an education piece, though. I think insurance was very much... Uh, something that your parents told you you probably needed to buy at some stage but just never happened
0: you got it from ensley when you went to university exactly. if you're of my generation
1: yeah still exists
2: Does right? It doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Well,
0: i don't know if that makes me not that old or it makes the insurance industry <laughs> really slow
2: yeah it really just transpires that you just insure the very few things that you really care about and use every day without as you say really thinking about there's a whole host of of products and value tied up in your apartment whether it's owned by you or your landlord that you know, if something terrible did happen, you know, you'd, you'd really be out of pocket. You
1: no, know, there's just a very interesting quote I heard once that I think it relates to this, that insurance allows people to live their lives. This is one of those points it's like your handbag, you lose a handbag, it's a thousand pounds. It could really damage your life, your, the quality of your life for that period of time. And I just think we need to get that right for this generation.
0: You know, and to pick up on that point and something you just mentioned earlier, you know, you were saying Reposit solves a need. Is that a need for the renters or for the people who own the property who are renting it out? Or is this one of those that's both sides of the equation? So when we talk about content insurance, we're pretty clear that it's a lot of the people who are trying to get their contents insured that are losing out here as opposed to the insurers. When we're talking about obviously what you do, is there's a, there's a few more parties involved in that equation, perhaps, you know, who is the need greatest for, I guess?
1: I mean, I can only speak from where the company was founded, which is my own personal pain point. So Um, about 2015, I would say, moved over from Northern Ireland and London, obviously very expensive, and had to put up three and a half grand and had to borrow money from my grandparents to do it. And I had a professional job and I thought, I'm failing at life here, man. I'm 25 and I'm I'm having to borrow money from my grandparents, which let's be honest, I probably couldn't pay them back. Yeah, it was was difficult. And I thought this can't just be me or is it just me? And when I did research, it turned out 50% of tenants were borrowing money in some form. To make that move, credit card loans, payday loans, mum and dad. I was like, wow, why is, why is nobody talking about this? And then I realised there's no communication, like no one's going to go into rent a property and say, don't have the money for this, you're always going to find it and pay it anyway. So there's this side of the industry thinking nobody has an issue when 50% of people has an issue. That's where it came from. So for, for me, the, the real true pain point is with tenants. However, having researched it, because obviously we need to ensure that landlords are happy with it and agents are happy with it, we discovered, well, after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, interest rates are historically low. So taking £4.5 billion and storing it away isn't as as good as it used to be, shall we say. And also the government are putting in legislation that are stopping agents and landlords, shall we say, overcharging tenants. So they've got rid of fees. They have reduced the amount you can ask for a deposit and capped it at five weeks' rent. And
0: I, I wonder if you were going down the track that the landlords are suffering financially because no, of No, yeah, things, but it's just or? not an
1: optimal... Well, basically, I think what I'm saying is that due to the environment that we're in, the government legislation in place, and everything that's happening, taking a cash deposit is no longer as attractive as it used to be when you could just take it, put it in your bank account, get some interest off it and then hand it back. So now when we're approaching people, we're approaching them in a different environment mm-hmm. to what it used to be, which is allowing them to... Entertain the idea of the disruption when otherwise asking someone not to take cash would have been insane.
0: Yeah, ten years ago you'd been getting six percent on that cash. Of course, you want to hold the cash. Well, exactly. Yeah, and again, yeah. that means if the value of the thing that you're trying to replace has gone up in the period of time the tenant's been there, then you can cover it. Whereas now insurance makes a lot more sense. But also, what
1: that. insurance there for? Insurance <laughs> is there to replace a cap on um, an amount of capital that you store away in case something bad happens. And what you say is, don't do that. Pay us a little bit, and we'll pay out when it happens. And I, I mean, I can't believe that this area hasn't of deposits generally. It hasn't been applied to that. I think it's, I think it's quite mad.
0: I'm 100% on board with cutting some of the fees that are charged to tenants because I do think some of them are extortionate but largely I would say they're not charged by landlords in my experience it's the people in the middle no (laughs) comments but yes (laughs) no no I wouldn't expect you to comment but that is my my personal opinion which I have vocalised frequently on this show so we heard a bit about the origin story of Reposit there what about Risk is it do we have an origin story there
2: yeah we do a long time ago in a galaxy no (laughs) Um, no so Risk was started a couple of years ago by two chaps uh, Darren Darius Kumana and Niall Barton, and they um, basically came from relatively different backgrounds. So Niall, I often refer to Niall as the insurance heavyweight. I don't think he minds me saying that because I say it so often now. Darius is our own sort of Steve Jobs um, personality, super, super smart product guy. And together they sort of came together and, you know, I think it was actually over a dinner where they sort of started to discuss some of the challenges with personal lines insurance. We've already identified a lot of those challenges and issues. And really the focus was, um, you know, can we build something that sort of rebuilds that trust with the consumer, thinks about the customer first, and, you know, particularly with this sort of burgeoning tech growth um, in London and the relationship with the FCA sandbox and things like that. There's all sorts of really interesting sort of trends going on, and, and, and it seemed like the right time. So sort of fast forward to August last year, and we launched our app, so launched on the on the App Store uh, initially with our contents insurance product. Really, the, the key fundamentals there were, were to focus on it being personal, simple, and transparent. So personal, um, really thinking about creating a policy that's tailored to you, the individual. Simple, um, you know, we're only sort of four or five disclosure questions, and then the transparency piece comes from our risk score. So the the sort of foundation of the business really was built on how opaque the customer journey is traditionally, and and how we could change that. So. We really lifted the lid on on how people are priced, why they're priced in a certain way, which is traditionally something that you wouldn't you know be aware of in insurance. You'd, you'd typically assume that, but it was you know front and center of the platform and something we really wanted to to shout about and to be known for being transparent.
0: Talking about you know price, do you do content insurance for homeowners as well as renters?
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay.
0: Is there any? Difference. So my contents is the same, mm. but somehow out of somewhere I find the money for a deposit, and no. I purchase a property, and I move all my contents from my rented flat to my purchased flat. Let's say they're in the same building, they're exact mm-hmm. same flat for kind of the purposes of this comparison. Yeah. Is there a difference then
2: in terms of price? Yeah, for there me- is. Ah, yes. okay. Yeah. So you are then viewed very differently by the insurance industry.
0: How dare they? I know.
2: Unbelievable. Um, and explain that, please. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one small slither. There are a a heap of of different variables that impact the price of you know what you pay for your insurance, and uh, you know if we take that example, traditionally and the data that has been collected on on renters ever since renters insurance was a thing, has demonstrated that they are more likely to claim. So they are more likely to have an accident than someone that owns or or mortgages their property. So as such pricing is reflective of that. So it may not be, you know, if you've been an incredibly uh, safe and sensible person for the last 10 years, but now have moved into another property, it, you know, really doesn't take that into account at all. It's all entirely based on that historical insurance data. And it's absolutely something that is, unfortunately, where the industry is today, it's still based on... But you're working on on it right though. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So the benefit of working Uh, for an insure tech and in this industry is that we're not tied to legacy systems. We have to adopt, because obviously we don't provide the capacity, so we have to play nicely with our capacity providers and as such need to use those rating factors. But the more we learn about our customers, the more interesting technology that we do build allows us to unlock these new pricing mechanisms and new factors that actually we think will have a better indicator as to how accident-prone someone might be or to create a price that is just more suited to that individual.
0: It's mad as well, because I was just thinking of a very basic examples of if I own my own property, I can put whatever locks I like on the door. If I rent a property, I have no choice over what locks are on that door. And say my lock breaks, which has happened to me before. I've had a key snap off in a lock. I've got to wait for my landlord to come and fix that at mm. a time and that is convenient for yeah, him.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'm, now, I'm
0: now even angrier. Well, the, the, the,
2: the, the thing that we actually learned quite recently was how – not even when it comes to renters and and mortgages and that sort of thing, but actually the type of insurance product you have. So in the industry, if you only buy gadgets insurance or only buy phone insurance, you are seen as someone who is more risky than someone who buys general contents insurance and adds their phone or their gadget onto it. So what you're actually finding is that a gadget-only policy is more expensive than if I was to buy a general contents policy and add a gadget to it.
1: Is that because you're a more risk adverse person? Quite clearly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the historical
3: data, or perceived that way. Anyway. Ex- yeah, exactly.
2: Or um,
0: working in suretech because yeah, I've got it. i very sure coming up my age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: That's it. And, but this is the point: is it's such a confusing product. It's such a confusing way that consumers are priced that it just totally disconnects the consumer from that trust.
0: Yeah, I mean, as I was just saying, I'm I'm overinsured. I have, you know, contents insurance and I have specific items that are insured separately. That's largely jewellery. But when we moved our contents insurance, we moved house, we moved from London out of London. And our our new house, our next door neighbours got some overgrown trees that they will not cut down. And we're in the middle of like a long negotiation with them. But anyway, my contents insurance has gone up because my next door neighbours won't trim their trees. Because the trees are likely of damaging the building, which could damage the contents. And I was like, are you kidding me? I wasn't allowed to speak to them on the phone. My, my other half was like, this is going to end badly. Um, <laughs> you know, tangents aside, it actually sounds like to me that there is a way that both the products you offer could work very nightly together as part of an ecosystem here. Do you think we're going to see more of that kind of, you do the one thing that you're doing really well and you do the one thing that you're doing really, really well for there to, uh, I sound like Nigel, my co-host here, who he talks about like invisible insurance. But, you know, say I go to rent a property and actually all of this is just included. Like I pay my fee instead of paying my deposit and my insurance comes with it. Do you see more of an ecosystem where where different players work closely together to provide better services overall for customers?
1: I think so. I think generally as a business, you're better focusing on getting one thing right before moving on to do other things. It's also about where you can access the consumer. For example, we happen to access tenants just when they're moving into a new property. They're considering changing aspects of their life. They're probably looking at, you know, what they find risky, what they don't. So it's a good time to be offering them complementary products so of course yeah there's there's definitely room for that i think and i think should we be working together more absolutely um because new lines of insurance business i think the hardest part is finding your consumers and and attracting them particularly if you know with tenants contents where you're finding that you know 50 percent of them aren't organically going looking for contents insurance so it's finding them and triggering them at the point when they're considering it so yeah i definitely Mm. think so
2: yeah definitely i think the hardest part certainly that I found about attracting customers in a content insurance product is getting them at the right time. You know, I don't let everyone on Facebook know necessarily when I'm moving into a new property, although a lot of people do. There are certain signals in the market, there are platforms that I'm on, there are things that I'm signing up to um, and using something like Reposit as well that, you know, really help to enrich that data for us to acquire those customers. And then I think that, you know, the other side of that is if you then start to think about the sort of novel data sets and and how they interact with each other. So the idea of taking data that Reposit may have on the property or the tenants or how many people live there, the type of property it is, these are the questions that we ask during our disclosure. So there's always some really interesting opportunities to streamline that disclosure process. And to actually surface an indicative quote earlier on in that process, based on that that data.
1: Yeah, it's so. richer than that too, because we're getting a timeline individually of how someone's behaved in theory throughout their renting life. You know, at the end, what was broken, what kind of things were broken, what was the damage, and where was the damage. So I can imagine for multiple different insurance lines that that data would be very, very interesting to see.
0: Mm. Yeah, you, you do that, that holy grail of actually having a profile of me as a person and how likely I am to be, at, you know, to be a risk mm. profile for various things.
2: It's tough though, isn't it? Because it, I think there's an element of that that still smells like the traditional industry in that there's this sort of discriminatory pricing that I think as an industry we've been very bad at in the past and that the challenge now is we have richer data than we've ever had but it's also at a time when consumers care about transparency. I think getting the balance between the two is is the challenge, and you know as I say, you know we really focus on telling people why they're priced in a certain way so You need to be comfortable, if you're pricing someone that way, communicating to them in that way as well and just sort of, you know, making sure you have that balance. Fair point, yeah.
0: All right, well, um, that concludes the roundtable part of today's show. Next up, we bring you an interview with Ryan Matheson, who is the co-founder of Glovebox, a US insurtech that centralises customers' policies and gives greater access and clarity around those policies. Let's hear from him now. (music) Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and I'm here with Ryan from Glovebox. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure.
0: So first question, what is your role at Glovebox?
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Glovebox, um, which we are about three years into this project. So it's been uh, it's been a long three years. We've learned a lot thus far.
0: And you're, you're based out in Denver. We just had a great conversation about that. Is there a lot of insuretech in Denver, or...? Are you kind of the the outliers?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely an emerging market for InsurTech. And there's a lot of interest, actually, from uh, the governor here, Jared Polis, who has a tech background, and then the insurance commissioner, Rolf Kalman. They've definitely made a, a very big effort to uh, help maintain InsurTech here in Denver. And so we actually met with Rolf about two months ago. Um, and they're, again, really making an effort, a concerted effort, to you know, help with legislation uh, to keep insure tax here in Colorado. So it's absolutely budding.
0: So can you tell me a little bit? So it sounds like a fantastic place to be. Can you tell me what Glovebox actually does?
3: Definitely, definitely. As we mentioned before, we we came on, I've said it a thousand times. So we're essentially an aggregated application for insurance consumers to access their documents. So think of the Geico app, but for every carrier to feed into. What we find is there's a lot of confusion from the consumer side. I think we probably. As insurers in the industry give consumers too much credit uh, that they care about their insurance when, you know, the fact of the matter is they really don't care until they need it. And so we really want to be there and be kind of that centralized resource when they need their insurance. And so that is what Glovebox does kind of on, you know, a high level uh, outlook.
0: You mentioned there are a couple of, of things you're doing. Um, what what problems are you solving in the industry? So um, for customers and maybe also for insurers as well, what, what are you trying to help them do? Yeah,
3: a great question. So we've actually got a three-tier problem-solving plan here. So one is for the carriers, especially on the independent channel, but not relegated to the independent channel. Uh, insurers are having a very hard time communicating with their clients. They're having a hard time finding ways to get participation from their clients within insurance. They're having a hard time with the billing process. And the reason why is because there's an agent involved in the middle. And so it really limits the type of communication that they can have with the client because of that middle agent. So for the carrier side, we're really, um, again, helping them communicate with their clients, helping them on retention with billing, uh, helping them roll out new products, and really help with that brand awareness, which is a huge thing uh, for insurers as a whole. So that's kind of one party. The next party is for the agencies in the middle. And this is probably the most important piece of the cog. We have a really strong mission just based on our background to help preserve the agents. We think that we can really help delay the inevitable, which is in our opinion that agents will not be around. We think we can delay it for quite a bit of time with this technology. And what we've done is we've really helped the agencies offload a lot of their service work that comes into play especially on the home and auto side. You know, consumers are very demanding on we need it right now, we expect, you know, on-demand service 24 hours a day and the, the fact of the matter is agencies just can't keep up with that. And so with our technology, we're really offloading a lot of what we call tier 1 service requests, which is just kind of the nominal auto ID cards, auto policies, what's my deductible, how do I put in a claim, kind of the stuff that doesn't make the agency's money. And it's also a frustration for the clients. So that's a huge piece of our ecosphere is helping the agencies. And then the last one is going to be the clients themselves. We really want to create some transparency and remove a lot of the kinks in the hose, if you will, uh, with dealing with your insurance. And kind of our philosophy is we want to be where the clients are. And that's kind of what we're relaying to our partners via albeit agencies or carriers, that let's be where the clients want to be. Not Let's not make them come to us. Let's go to them. And so really, that's a big initiative of ours on the client side.
0: That's great. So it sounds like you're solving problems all the way through the value chain there.
3: Yeah, it's kind of like when you take the roof off the house, you know, you see a 100 different ways that we can help. And so honestly, it's been kind of a challenge for us to stay streamlined to say, okay, let's really solve these instrumental problems first. And then we can really tackle the outlying issues uh, with extra, you know, integrations that, that will help the consumer. So
0: you mentioned, you know, a few things there. how um, does technology enable you to do that? You know, just sort of what types of technology are you using?
3: Yeah, so a lot of our stuff is built custom, you know, there's not a lot of, let me rephrase, there's really no custom-built APIs at this point that we can access to connect to the carrier. So we're really having to build everything from scratch. So that's been exciting and daunting at the same time. I'm sure you can imagine it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of money spent to make it work. Um, We've got some carriers that already have APIs built for some of the functionalities that we're looking to accomplish. And some carriers, uh, they don't have that yet. And so they're working on it. Uh, So each carrier kind of tends to run at their own speed. And then we're also creating other technologies that are specific to Glovebox that we're beta testing with some of our carriers. So
0: it does sound super intensive, but I'm sure it's worth it in the end if, if you've got connections to these carriers that other people don't have.
3: They're exciting conversations. You know, whoever thought insurance would be, you know, something that gets you out of bed in the morning, but we're insurance nerds and we come from the epicenter of working with the clients, working with the carriers. So we really know what the clients are asking for. Now it's just getting the carriers to kind of catch up because the buyers are ready. They want this technology. It's, it's the sellers that were kind of easing into the process to getting them to catch up.
0: I think that's always the problem with with insurance. Um, yep. You know, we get out of bed for insurance over here, but I'm not sure that many other people do. One question as well that would be super helpful, if you could give us some, some color on your business model. So how do you make money? I mean, yeah. I think I can guess, but c- could you give us an outline without giving away any like internal state secrets?
3: No, yeah, totally. So we actually have what's called our Glovebox Agency coming out here in about two months. And essentially what that is, is it's a white label product that we are going to be selling on a subscription basis two agency owners across the US. And essentially what it is, it's their own app. Um, So we're connected to all of the carriers, We're we're able to brand the agency, they're able to cross sell, we've got a cool feature coming out called the feed. And what that is, is it's going to allow the agency owner to communicate with their clients on the feed of Glovebox. So hey, did you know the John Smith agency now does life insurance, you know, click here to get a quote, uh, it's really going to do away with the you know, traditional newsletter email that they've been using currently. And right now, we're not even really advertising the, the Glovebox agency white label. And we're getting about six to eight inquiries a day already from agency owners that want to get on the waiting list. We're starting out with 200 agencies. And that'll kind of be our beta round. And then after that, we're going to open it up. And there's about forty five thousand independent agencies in the U.S.
0: So that that sounds like your, your business model. There is that you're you're selling software as a service.
3: Correct. Yep. And there's some other features involved with it. You know, we really saw uh, an interesting gap in the process when it comes to claims handling. Uh, when you've got a client, an agency, and a carrier in the mix. So let's say I get into an auto accident and I need an auto body shop. We found a really big discrepancy on what an agency would refer. So they may refer, you know, the Bob Smith body shop that's next door who may or may not be qualified to do the work. Whereas the carriers, they have their list of approved auto body shops that they recommend, but the client doesn't always get to that point. So we're actually creating a white glove claims automation service. We're going to be able to provide vendors that have been approved by the carriers to the consumers at the point of claim on Glovebox. And so that'll really be a nice help to the agencies, kind of offload that piece. And so that's an additional revenue model. And we're also returning some of that revenue back to the agency owners.
0: And um, and from the client side, if, I, if I'm a, a consumer, if you like, who's using your product, do I pay anything?
3: No, it's completely free to the user. We've made a a huge stance that and with our carrier partners that we are not going to be charging for the app it's going to be completely free to the user and once you see some of the technologies that we're creating that are going to be within Glovebox that'll roll out over the next 12 months i think uh, i think the consumers are going to be pleasantly surprised about what's coming
0: it all sounds very exciting my next question was actually going to be like what's next for you guys but i think you've kind of touched on it there is there anything else you'd like to add
3: Absolutely. So, um, you know, an exciting thing for us, we just added Scott McNeely to our advisory board. Scott McNeely created Sun Microsystems, a tech genius out of Palo Alto. He's never been in insurance before. So we're excited to bring his mind into the insure tech space to really see what we can do. I think he saw uh, a huge opportunity for himself to kind of bring that tech savviness to the insurance space. So we're excited to... uh, kind of be under his his toolage with, uh, with what he'll bring to the table. And then I would say the other thing that's coming from Glovebox is uh, digital vehicle registrations. We met with the Colorado DMV on Friday, and we will be one of the first to offer digital vehicle registrations in the state of Colorado. So now you'll have your digital vehicle registration and your auto ID card in one place on Glovebox. Uh, and it'll also be available to put into Apple Wallet.
0: Does that mean like I'll have a digital version of my driving license? So if if I get asked to to show it, I can show it digitally. Is that correct?
3: Not your driver's license yet. It's going to be the piece of paper that you get uh, when you register your vehicle. I don't know if the UK does it that way, but in the US, you get a piece of paper that you then put in your glove box. That's essentially the registration for your vehicle. In the U.S., it's a very outdated and antiquated process. And so th- bringing that digital is going to be a huge step forward for U.S. consumers.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So we, we don't have that in the U.K. as far as I know. I, I've driven yeah. for a long time. But I've never had one. So if I do, I'm in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> But we only just made people move over from paper licenses to plastic licenses. So believe you me, we might be slightly further ahead in some cases, but we're totally not there on the entire digital process. It's amazing, right? And
3: we do want to do digital licenses, but we see that being a five-year kind of initiative. The digital vehicle registrations is kind of the first step in that direction. so.
0: Brilliant. Well, that all sounds super exciting. Where can people find out more about you, uh, about Glovebox, the company, or about yourself, if people want to find out what you're up to? Do you have a Twitter handle or something you'd like to share?
3: Absolutely. So they can go to our website, gloveboxapp.com. They can also visit us on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm embarrassed I don't run our Twitter or Instagram. My wife does, and she's going (laughs) to kill me. But I don't know our handles. Uh, But if you search Glovebox app, you'll be able to find them. Uh, I'm also available on LinkedIn, Ryan Matheson. So feel free to reach out and uh, would love to communicate with with anyone that has questions or just you know wants to learn more.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Sarah. We appreciate it.
0: Wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to you both for joining me. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have websites, Twitter handles you'd like to share, Jude?
1: Yeah, we do indeed. You can find us on reposit.co.uk and the Twitter handle get, at getmyreposit.
0: And Nick, how about you? Yep,
2: yeah, you can find us at risk.co. That is risk, W R I S K dot co. And yeah, there's plenty of information there as well as on the App Store and the Android Store.
0: Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to my guests, to Jude, Nick, and to Ryan. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsurTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com.